All right, today's scripture reading will be from Matthew chapter 18. And we'll be reading verses 15 through 20. So if you would stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. Matthew, 15, or Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by the Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. May God bless the reading of his word. Turn next in your Bibles to John chapter 13. <clears throat> John chapter 13, beginning in verse 18. <clears throat> Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity we have to come to your word. Lord, even though some topics are more difficult to approach than others, uh, we don't want to overlook them because, Lord, we want to be faithful to all of your scriptures. Not just the parts we like, not just the parts that are most fun for us, but Lord, we want to deal with even topics that are not as enjoyable. And Lord, it's not because, uh, not because we want to be mean, Lord, because we want to be faithful. Pray, Lord, as we come to this passage today and we come to the applications of it, that we would be open to your word, that we would be obedient to your word. In your name, amen. So sometimes to be healthy means that something needs to be removed. We remove the dead buds off of roses, right? Otherwise the bush won't grow anymore. It won't get the nutrients it needs. We remove cancer in order to regain physical health. Now, wouldn't it be insane to tell your cancer, you know, I want my cancer to know that I love it. So I'm just going to leave it there. I want, it to, I want it to grow and I want it to be there because I love it. You know, I don't, we wouldn't do that, right? For the sake of our and benefit of our whole body, we would absolutely remove the cancer. The same is true of the church. Often the topic we're dealing with today is overlooked in many pulpits and underpracticed in many churches. If we as a church are supposed to bring glory to God, is it glorifying to God keep someone in our membership who is living in unrepentant sin. Now in our passage today, we'll see the second part of, of what we've called Jesus' cleansing of the community of faith. Last week, we saw Jesus humbly wash the feet of the twelve, preparing them for discipleship, except for one of them. Jesus even gave that exception uh, last week. We saw that. Today, we'll see Jesus, without hesitation, send away one of the twelve from the community in a way to cleanse the community even further. Today we'll be, uh, we'll, we will again work with this passage and application in two major sections. First, we'll walk through the passage itself so we can understand the text, and then we'll look at the application. 
So let's read in our Bibles. Uh, let's in Matthew chapter or uh, John chapter thirteen, beginning in verse eighteen. It says this: "I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the Scriptures will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am He. Truly, truly, I say to you." Whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What, are you, going to, what, what, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, that Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast so that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. So first of all, let's start, let's, let's walk through this passage and understand what's going on. What is the, what's the scenario here? We saw last week, uh, we were introduced to the fact that Judas was about to betray Jesus. He, he already had the plan in place. He'd already made the deal. And we saw last week that his will was in line with the will of Satan. Ultimately, all of our sin is because our will is in line with the will of Satan when we sin. So Jesus here begins off, he says, I'm not speaking of all of you. We saw that he, he washed the disciples' feet and he says, I'm washing your feet. And uh, let's uh, look back here. Um, uh, I lost my place here. All right. Um, anyway, Jesus had already made clear that, that, that not everyone was to participate in the discipleship process. There was one among them, and we already know who that is, that being Judas. The reader already knows, yet the disciples don't know this yet. Jesus tells them, I'm speaking. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Um, so this, he says that the scriptures must be fulfilled. So he's saying, not all of you are my disciples, essentially is what he's trying to get at. Not all of you are my disciples. Not all of you had your feet washed for discipleship. One of you had your feet washed, but you are not one of my disciples. It's essentially what he's getting at here. And then he's saying, this is going to happen. This person, whatever's going to happen here, this person who's going to, uh, who is not included, is because the scriptures must be fulfilled. And he, he quotes out of here, uh, Psalm chapter 41. Psalm chapter 41, especially in verse nine, says, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Let's read the whole chapter to kind of get a context of what's going on here. David writes this psalm. Many scholars believe this was probably written while Absalom was trying to kill him. His own son was trying to kill him. So uh, that's, that's it's generally when, when scholars think this might have been written. It says here, uh, beginning in verse 1, it says, Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. 
You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed and his illness you restore in, in his illness you restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me, heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice. When will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words, while his heart gathers uh, while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. And all who hate me whisper together about me, they imagine the worst for me. They say, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. But you have upheld uh, me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. That concludes actually the book one of the, of the Psalter. So when it comes to understanding this psalm, uh, we need to realize that, that in the Old Testament, David is set up as kind of this archetype, if you will, of, what, of who Jesus will be. Um, Jesus is a son of David, right? He is from the line and lineage of David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, there's a prophecy given that says that to David, saying that your son will have an eternal throne. So who is this son? It wasn't Solomon, right? Solomon doesn't have an eternal throne. So whose son has the eternal throne? Well, this is Jesus. Ultimately, 2 Samuel 7 is fulfilled in Jesus. So when we read the Psalms, we see Psalms that are, especially in the superscription here, it says, to the choir master, a Psalm of David. So it's a Psalm, maybe, maybe written by the historical David, but there's a lot of it that it then applies to the ultimate David applies to the, 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 uh, the, the greater David, Jesus Christ. In fact, to the choir master, that phrase, that Hebrew phrase there, for those of you guys who like language stuff, you know a little bit about language. Uh, language is pretty fluid if you've ever studied a language. One word can have multiple different interpretations. Uh, the word here that's translated to the choir master can also be translated to the end. In fact, the Greek Old Testament, the, the one that was translated 200 years before Jesus uh, ever walked this earth, translated every time they understood these psalms to be about the future. They, so they translated to the choir master, they translated that phrase, eis or to the end, every single time. So they understood this passage to be prophetic about something else. In fact, to be prophetic, specifically about a greater David. Now, the only problem in this passage that may give us some pause is in verse four, where it says, heal me for I have sinned against you, right? So that doesn't, so when the New, the New Testament will often quote the Psalms as about Jesus, okay, but we also have to remember there is a historical author as well. So David, when he was writing this, spoke of his own sin, but the fulfillment of these prophecies comes in the greater David who did not sin, Right, but rather is fulfilled in all, the rest of this is all fulfilled in this in this way. Um, I mean, look at this. I mean, there, I, I, I'm, I, I struggle to find another way to see this other than than to be pointing directly to Jesus. Uh, verse six says, "When one comes to see me, uh, no, sorry, verse five, my enemies say of me in malice. When will he die and his name perish? Did Jesus have people that wanted to kill him? Yep." Right, And when one comes to me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. And when he goes out, he tells it abroad. He's still talking about it his enemies. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say, a deadly thing is poured out on him. Hmm. 
a deadly thing, he will not rise again from where he lies. Well, that sounds pretty familiar, does it not? The, the enemies of Jesus wanted to kill him so that he would be done and his influence would be over. And then the, the, as John pointed out, John points out this particular verse being fulfilled right here in the supper. Even my close friends in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Even my close friends are trying to kill me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. Right? And what happens to Jesus after his death? He's raised from the dead. Right? So this, this psalm, though not every detail is fulfilled in Christ, obviously he does not sin, but there's much detail in this passage that ultimately is fulfilled in Jesus, the greater David. So this, this psalm of David is then about the greater David, the eschatological David, the end times David, Jesus Christ, the one who brings salvation. So that kind of gives us some background to the scripture being fulfilled here. It says, but the scriptures will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And he says, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Now, again, he just quoted a psalm that they may very well probably knew, right? They probably had this memorized. They knew Psalm 41, maybe even by memory. If not, they heard it read over and over and over again. And they remember something about this psalm. And Jesus says, this psalm needs to be fulfilled, right? So that when this happens, you're going to know the truth. You're going to know that I am he. So in other words, what is the point of prophecy? Jesus points out the point of this psalm, the point of all prophecy is to point to Christ. It's to point to him and describe him, especially here, he says, to point to his divinity, right? To point to the divinity of Christ. And he says, when this happens, when you see me betrayed, essentially, when you see me die, when you see me raised from the, raised from the dead, you're going to realize, hey, Jesus saw that. Jesus talked about that. That's what Psalm 41 was about. And now I realize that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is who he says he was. He says that, he, you will, that uh, when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. The words, the phrase translated here is what we've seen before, ego a me. It's, it's I am. It's the same phrase that's translated as I am in, in the Greek version of, the, of Exodus, where God says, who will, you know, Moses, Moses asks, who shall I say send, sent me? And God says, tell them I am has sent you. Jesus, in no uncertain terms, has claimed, when you see this take place, you will know that I am the I am. That I am God. So this fulfillment of prophecy, even, even the betrayal of Jesus by Judas, shows that Jesus is God. Then verse 20, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Just like those who receive Jesus receive the Father. Jesus said, if you believe in me, you believe in the Father. Or if you believe in the Father, you must believe also in me. That reciprocal, tight relationship between the Father and the Son. This same relationship is bestowed on the believers. Right? If you if you go to someone and someone receives you, it is just like they're receive, receiving Jesus. Now, again, that doesn't mean that every single person who's nice to you is automatically a Christian. It's not what this is saying. It's saying that in function, someone is, if someone is treating you well, they are just like treating Jesus well because you are in Christ. 
because you are found in Christ. What an amazing truth that is, this, our relationship with Jesus. If you were a Christian today, your relationship with Jesus is that tight where he describes it in the same way as he describes the relationship of the Father and the Son. What a, what a privilege it is to be children of God. Verse 21 then continues. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. We've seen this. Jesus has, has continued to, uh, to, uh, to be troubled in his spirit. He's, he's gotten more and more. He's feeling the weight of the cross come upon him. And in fact, in the other gospels, it records Jesus, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. What will happen a few hours from this moment? And he is sweating drops of blood because he is in such anguish. Right? Jesus is very torn up about this. He's very troubled. He knows what's going to take place. Imagine this. You're the son of God. You've existed for all of eternity. Right? You've never suffered. You've never been whipped. You've never been crucified. And now you have, a, you have human flesh that will feel every single crack of the whip. That will feel every single nail. It's got to be a, a bit intimidating, right? Like us, Jesus also has emotions. This, it's a scary thing. He knows we've seen, again, we've seen in John 12, he's not going to step back from this. He is going toward the cross and he's going with full force toward the cross. It still troubles him. Isn't that amazing? That even when we, similarly, when we have things that, that come up that we are scared of or that we're uncertain about, that we can have the same confidence as we move, as we move towards whatever persecution may come because Jesus has died for our sins. His spirit is troubled, and specifically in this moment, his spirit is troubled because one of his close friends is going to betray him. Imagine if you knew ahead of time that you had a, a friend who was going to betray you. Now again, we know how much it hurts when someone who is close to us lets us down or even betrays us. We know how that feels. Imagine if you knew ahead of time what was going to take place. Wouldn't that hurt? I mean, the, just, I mean, the, the hurt is already there if, when you do get betrayed, but the hurt is so much more when you know it's going to come. He is, he's troubled in spirit and he testifies, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now again, Jesus has been hinting at this idea that someone is going to betray them uh, already in the gospel and already in our, in our passage today. But perhaps the disciples thought, well, this is maybe somebody outside of the group of the twelve. Right? Maybe, this is, maybe this is one of the followers, one of the people that we saw in John 12 who don't believe. Right? One of these people who are not believers, maybe they're going to be the ones we're worried about. They're the ones that are going to betray Jesus. Right? None of them thought it's going to be one of us, except for Judas, who already knew what he was going to do, right? But none of the other 12 thought, had any inkling. They thought, well, we're all safe here. This is, a, this is a safe place, right? This is a safe space, right? To use the, the term we use today, right? This is a safe space, right? Nothing bad's going to happen here. Yet, Jesus tells them, one of you will betray me. Now, that'd be shocking news, Right? As one of the disciples, that would be shocking news. And in fact, look at this, verse 22. The disciples look at each other. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. Who's he talking about? Is he talking about me? Is he talking about me? Who's he talking about? Right? Which one of us is going to betray you? This is not sounding like a good thing. Right? 
And one of his disciples, verse 23, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table close to Jesus. This is an interesting phrase here in the Gospel of John. It talks about the disciple whom Jesus loved, or sometimes translated as the beloved disciple. This is a, it's, it's an interesting thing here. This, is, this character shows up. Right? This is the first time this guy shows up. This disciple who is loved by Jesus. This disciple whom Jesus loved. And, and scholars debate on who this is, who this might be, who might have been sitting. So if we deduce what we know, that the, if this, this supper is indeed just the 12 disciples, it's got to be one of them, right? And we also see this interaction between him and Peter. So it's very likely that him and Peter have a close enough relationship where there can be an unspoken nod that he knows exactly what he means, right? Like a husband and wife, you can have a conversation without even talking to one another because you know each other so well. Right? So there's a, there's a lot of unspoken conversation that takes place after this. So if we think about that and break that down, in the scriptures, who is close to Peter? Well, we have Peter, James, and John. Right? Are the three inner circle that's oftentimes they're, they're, they're brought together. And then if we continue to think about this, right, this, this actually testifies to the authorship of John. Who wrote the Gospel of John? Well, what's more likely to be the case? If we were to maybe even narrow it down to Peter, James, and John, right? Uh, in fact, what, what I would suggest here, and what I believe is going on here, is this is, this is John. This is the way John is referring to himself in the passage without using his own name, right? He's saying, I'm there. I was there. I was sitting right there. This is a way that we have, we can affirm that there is firsthand, this gospel right here is firsthand eyewitness testimony. There's somebody who is sitting right there with Jesus, is having this, this interaction, the disciple who Jesus loved. Before we think, well, that's really arrogant to say, John, I'm the guy that Jesus loved, right? That's not what he means here. As a matter of fact, if you were to look at some, if you were to see this in the original language, the way that, that it's described here, the way John uh, describes himself then, he describes himself as, it, it's basically this, I'm the disciple who Jesus loved and had to keep on loving. I'm the one that didn't deserve love at all, but Jesus loved me anyway. I'm the one who Jesus had to keep on loving because I keep messing up. <laughs> what a relief that is. Right, so when we see this beloved disciple, this is not an, an arrogant self-assertion here that John is saying, oh, look how great I am. No, this is actually a very humble statement. I'm the one that Jesus loved. And he kept on loving me. And I didn't deserve that love. The exact same. And if you think about this, then because of the way he refers to himself, from the reader's standpoint, this is a guy that we want to be like, right? We want to be the beloved disciple. We want to be the disciple that Jesus loved. This is what that looks like. I'm the guy that Jesus had to love and keep on loving. What humility is shown here. This shows us exactly the type of disciple we should be as one that is a humble disciple. <laughs> One of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table close to Jesus. Now, this phrase here, reclining at the table close to Jesus, helps to understand kind of how dinners were served at this time. They didn't use chairs in, at their tables. They would, most of, the, most of the, uh, these meals, especially formal meals, were done by reclining, laying down on, 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 your, uh, on your side, and you would use your arm to, to, lift your, to keep yourself up, and then you'd eat with your right hand, right? You'd eat 
recline yourself on your left hand, eat with your right hand. This is how typically how these meals would take place. So if you imagine this kind of setup, so don't matter, imagine Leonardo da Vinci, everybody on one side of the table with Jesus going, hey, everyone. That's not what's going on here. Everyone's laying, they're, they're laying down, resting on their arm. This is what's taking place. So uh, this disciple whom Jesus loved is sitting, in fact, the way the, the, the original language actually, uh, this, this doesn't come out in, in this translation. It says reclining at the table close to Jesus. Literally what this means is reclining at the chest of Jesus. So, he's, so Jesus is sitting here. The, John is sitting right next to him, right? He's right next to Jesus. He's reclining right next to where Jesus is, right in front of him. So he's on his right side there. Um, so the, uh, he's reclining at the table. This, is, this helps us understand kind of what's going on here. There's also, there's uh, the people who sit right next to Jesus are often in the place of honor or, or right next to the host. At a formal meal like this, if you were the host, the people you wanted to have honor, you would sit on your right hand and your left hand, right? So this would be a place of honor. This guy, this disciple, this humble disciple here is in this place of honor right next to Jesus. In fact, we're going to see somebody else who is very likely sitting on the other side as well. Then it says Simon Peter, probably because Simon Peter was not sitting right next to Jesus, right? He nods to him. It says uh, Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus whom whom he was speaking. Literally, it's the word nod. This is like Simon Peter then looking at, at John and going, ask him, hey, ask him the question, right? They all had the question on their mind. Who's he talking about, right? And Peter, ask him, right? You're sitting next to him, talk to him. Okay, so then it says, so Simon Peter nods to him and asks him about whom he was speaking. Verse 25, so that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, uh, said to him, Lord, who is it? So again, think of the context here. John is sitting right next to Jesus. He leans back and says, in fact, it literally says he leaned back on his chest. He leaned back, rests his head on his chest and said, Lord, who is it? And that sounds like it would be really awkward, right, guys? Like if I had somebody sitting that close to me, I'd probably punch him in the face. Not literally, but this is a different culture as well. So you got to keep that in mind as well. There's not any, there's not any uh, inappropriate activity being described here. Uh, in fact, there's still several Eastern cultures where it would be inappropriate for a man to walk hand in hand with a woman at all. So many times men, if they're in a friendship or a business relationship or something like that, you'll see in, even today in some Eastern cultures that men will hold hands. It's a sign of friendship, not anything inappropriate. So we don't need to take anything inappropriate from this. We don't need to say, oh, Jesus, what did he have going on with this guy, right? We don't need to do that, right? That's, that would be an inappropriate reading of the text. This is just close quarters. It's a small table, probably, probably not. It's probably not a room like this, right? Leonardo da Vinci probably drew way too big of a room for what was actually the case, right? And here, you got, here they are sitting in close quarters and he leans back, rests his head on Jesus and says, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. This idea here then uh, is, is uh, in this verse here, verse 26, Jesus' answer then, uh, uh, this is very likely given in, in secret. It's given just to John, right? Uh, because we see the, in, in, in just a second, we'll see the other disciples have no idea what's going on, why Judas got sent away. Um, so very likely Jesus just responds directly to John. Uh, with this response here, he says, um, he says, the one, the, it, is, uh, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. Here's another interesting fact here about this culture. Uh, oftentimes, the, the most prominent person, the special guest, right, they would receive the first bite. You take the best piece of meat or the best piece of bread, 
or whatever it is, the best piece, and the, and the, the host would dip it in whatever the sop was, whatever it was they would be eating out of, uh, whatever drink it would be, they would dip it in that and then hand it to the guest of honor, right? And here Jesus says, I'm going to give that to the, I'm going to give this honored item, this, this special honored item, this first bite, I'm going to give it to the guy who's going to betray me. The one who it is, this one guy you're wondering who it is, I'm going to give the special piece of honor to him. And we'll see the significance of that here later. Um, and after he had taken the morsel, verse 27, or, uh, so sorry, uh, so when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. So not only does Jesus, very likely then, since Jesus is, is handing this uh, honored piece to this guy, to Judas, uh, it also makes sense then for him to be in a close place, right? So we've already seen that John is sitting on his right side. Who's sitting on the left? Very likely this is also Judas. So Judas is placed in his seating position. He is in the best place, easiest place for Jesus to reach over and give this morsel to. It's to the guy sitting right next to him. If that's the case, not only has Judas had his feet washed, which the Lord didn't need to do, not only is he giving him the, the, not only is he seated at the place of honor right next to the host, but he's also given an object of honor by giving him the, the morsel of bread. Jesus has done far and above to reach out to Judas, has he not? And yet Judas still continues. In fact, he takes the bread and Satan, it says, enters into him. He becomes literally possessed by Satan himself to do the task that he is about to take, about to do. Jesus says, whatever you do, do quickly. Not even Satan, not even the betrayer can stand to rebel against Jesus. Jesus gives him a direct command, whatever you do, do it quickly. And we see at the end of this passage, Judas gets up immediately and goes. Right? Not even Satan can, can, lead the, can, can avoid the authority of Jesus. Jesus gives a command and Judas, dwelt in by Satan, leaves and, and obeys Jesus. <clears throat> then verse 28 tells us, shows us there's some ignorance here that takes place. Is now no one at the table knew why he said this to him, right? Probably except for John. No one else had any clue what was going on, right? I mean, think this, this is it's so funny because John shows the ignorance of the disciples over and over and over again. And here again, the disciples are like, why is he leaving? Why did Jesus tell him to do that, right? And probably, again, probably for us, as far as we know, the only person who really does know is John. Right, but the rest of the disciples, why, why is Judas leaving? Why did Judas, Jesus tell him to go and do this quickly? And gives us even some more insight, which again tells us, this is probably eyewitness, firsthand accounts here. Um, it says, uh, uh, some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling them, buy what we need for the feast. Now again, very likely this is actually the Passover feast, so it's not that feast that they're getting ready for, but rather the feast of unleavened bread that was about to take place uh, in the days afterwards. So buy what we need for the feast. They thought maybe, maybe he needs to go buy some food for the feast. Um, or that he should give something to the poor. This is also part of the culture during Passover. 
almsgiving, giving to the poor, was actually a very prominent practice. Right? Imagine, think about this. You're about to do one of the most religious things you could possibly do, go to Passover, and you're told to give to the poor in the Old Testament. So, hey, there's poor people. I'm feeling especially spiritual today. Right? So this is, I mean, again, that's nothing wrong with that either. Um, but almsgiving was part of the practice during Passover. So they see Judas leave and they think, well, maybe he's got to go buy some food because he's got the money bag. Or maybe he's going to go in and give, give money to the poor uh, like the rest of us are doing. And we already know why. The reader already knows why. It's because he's the one who's going to betray him. And Judas is actually going to leave to, to, to fulfill that. And then verse 30 says, so after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And it was night. That seems like an odd detail at the end of this, right? And it was night. We've seen this before in the book of John. John does not give details lightly. He often has very strong reasons for giving details like this. Not only is this representative of the time of day it was, obviously this evening meal would have been during the night. It would have been dark outside. It would have been nighttime. Uh, But also, as we saw with Nicodemus, that this, this phrase, and it was night, is probably also indicating that there is, uh, there is spiritual darkness as well. Right? That Judas, this one in spiritual darkness who's about to betray the Lord, goes off in his darkness, in his spiritual darkness, to fulfill this, this task. So we introduced at the beginning. This kind of brings up some, a, a pretty difficult topic. It's a topic that's often called church discipline. So looking at some application, what can we see from this passage? Um, church discipline. Uh, or we may, we may want to call it church restoration. I'll explain why that might be a better term uh, here in a second. Uh, a church is called, doesn't, I mean, let's think about this logically, right? A, a church should be as pure as possible, right? As much as we can, we should have a pure church. So we, as Baptists, we practice church membership. Part of the practice of church membership is actually to look toward this idea of church purity. Um, Church membership then ought to, as much as possible, reflect those who we can be certain are part of the kingdom. kingdom. Now again, we don't know people's hearts. That's fair enough. We do not know people's hearts. But at the same time, we as a church need to be careful about who we are allowing to be members when it comes to these issues. Because we don't, if, if they're not acting like a believer, how do we know they are a believer? Right? And, and do we really, I mean, think about this in a logical standpoint. Think about like maybe even, for example, like a business meeting, right? Let's say we're voting on a new pastoral staff. Do you want somebody who is able to vote who's not even a Christian? Or who you don't even know is a Christian? I mean, logically, this makes a certain amount of sense in a, from a practical standpoint. Um, you know, uh, uh, how, how, can we, uh, how can we be sure if someone, uh, if, if there's someone who's not here, how can we be sure? Uh, if they, how, can we, how can we keep them accountable? How do we know? If so, like, so let's say, uh, I'm going to talk about two groups of people. Let me phrase this out here. I'm going to talk about two groups of people specifically um, that, that we, we want to practice church discipline, what this, this whole practice would apply to. People who aren't here. Now, again, I don't mean they didn't show up today, right? People that are camping right now, and we're not, we're not about to kick them all out of the church, right? We're not talking about missed one service. We're talking about haven't been here for a long time, right? And have had no connection to the church. How do we know that they're still following the Lord? How can we know? How, we, we obviously can't keep them accountable. 
How do we know that they're being obedient to biblical commands? For one, we can actually count a couple that we know they're not being obedient to. Right? They're not taking part in Lord's Supper. Jesus said, this do in remembrance of me. There's a command from the Lord. Also, we are commanded not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. There's a biblical command. If someone is, on, is not here, has not been here for years, how can we think, and if they're not being obedient to biblical commands, how can we be certain if they're even a believer? Again, we may know them and that's fine, right? We may know that they're actually a believer, but we don't know that they're still practicing. I mean, this is, it just becomes a little bit silly at this point, or, or how can we be certain? And then what about, what are we supposed to think if someone is unrepentant, right? What if someone is in deep, dark sin and everyone knows about it and they don't care? They're totally unrepentant. How are we supposed to deal with that? Right, as, as Nicole brought up today, uh, that someone who is a Christian will be repentant. They will confess their sins. In fact, 1 John explains this. That, that if, if, if this is one of the ways you know for sure that you're a believer is if you're confessing sin. If you're not confessing sin, how do we know if you're a believer? If you're living in sin and still living in sin and unrepentant of your sin, how can we know that you're actually a believer? Now, again, you may be tempted to think, well, well maybe that sounds like that's a workable thing, River. Okay, that, that it makes sense maybe just for practical reasons why we might want to remove someone from membership or, or kick someone out or whatever the case may be. But is that even biblical? I mean, doesn't the Bible want us to love everyone? Doesn't the Bible just want us to love and accept everyone? Well, let's think about this then biblically. We'll turn real quickly to Matthew chapter 18. We're going to jump around a little bit here, so we'll try to keep up a little bit. Matthew chapter 18, we read this in our scripture reading this morning. It says, if your brother sins against you, which let's, let's face it, we are one body in Christ, right? If any brother sins, it is against the whole body, is it not? So any sin that takes place in the church is sin against us. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Call him to repentance, right? Call him to repentance. You will see in this passage, especially, that the goal of any such discipline, this whole process, the goal is for them to be restored, right? What we want is to go to somebody and say, hey, man, you're in sin. You're in sin. You need to repent of that. You need to confess that to the Lord. You need to be restored. Right? The goal is always restoration. The goal is always the health of that believer. Every single step. Right? So if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Right? Mission accomplished. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two others along with you. Now imagine this. You go to somebody who you know is a believer, right? And you say, hey man, this is messed up in your life. Something is wrong in your life. And they go, don't talk to me about that. Is that the response of a believer? No, right? A believer should confess sin, be repentant. We are living a life of humility and repentance to the Lord. Then it says, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. You need to make sure that other people are going to know what happened here, right? You don't want anybody, you don't want false accusations getting flown around here. And it says, if you, if you refuse to, to listen to them, tell it to the church. It's actually in the in New Testament. This is the first mention of the church. Is in this context of church discipline. 
If he refuses to listen, even, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. What does that mean? Let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Jesus basically says, if this person continues to be unrepentant, even when you've gone to them, when you've gone with two or three witnesses, and you've brought it before the church, and they continue in their unrepentance, treat them like they're not a believer. Because for all you know, they're not. Right? Treat them like they're not a believer. Now, what does a believer need? What does someone who's not a believer need? The gospel! Right? They need the gospel! What should we do with someone who is not repentant of their sin? Share the gospel. If they're not saved, they need to hear the gospel. But they definitely should not be a church member if we're not even sure they're saved. They're saved. Right? They shouldn't be a part of it. In fact, he says here, treat them like a Gentile and tax collector. That doesn't mean ignore them and, you know, send them away and shun them. And don't ever, don't, you better not have dinner with that person. Right? It's not what he's talking about. It's preach the gospel to them, but there needs to be consequences to their actions. Because hopefully then, by, by, leaving, by sending this person out of the church, by sending them out of the membership of the church, or and restricting them from Lord's Supper or something like that, by there being consequences, hopefully that'll draw that person to say, wow, my sin is serious. I need, the goal is always restoration. The goal is always to bring that person to repentance. Every single time, even the, the decision to, to have them leave, to have them not, no longer be a member, even though they may be welcome to come in the doors that they are no longer a member, no longer have the privileges of membership, the goal is always that they be restored. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is not, this is not saying that churches decide who's saved and who's not. That is not what this passage is saying. This passage is saying that you, the church, have the authority to exercise this, this type of procedure. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them in my Father's name. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Jesus promises when this stuff takes place, when this ugly business has to take place in a church, I'm right there. We have the full authority of the Lord Jesus Christ to take care of business in these ways, to be a pure church. 1 Corinthians 5 brings another great illustration of this. Um, in, in the church of Corinth, this is, uh, Paul brings up this, this interesting situation. Uh, just to summarize here before we read the passage, it's pretty grotesque as a matter of fact. There is a, a person who is a member of their church, uh, a guy who was having an intimate relationship with his stepmom. Right? It says in the text, it'll say it's his, with his father's wife. Right? So he's having an inappropriate sexual relationship with his stepmother. And look what Paul describes this. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. So even unbelievers wouldn't do this. Right? And this guy is doing it. And what do they do? how has this church responded? It says, and you are arrogant. Can you imagine the Corinthian church? Aren't we so loving? Yeah. This guy's in like terrible sin. Aren't we so loving for letting him stay with us? Aren't we so loving for just letting this go on? We're so nice. Right? He says, you are arrogant. He says, ought you not rather to mourn? Shouldn't that be the response? If one of our own, if one of our members was living in sin, should we not rather mourn with them? Mourn over them. Lord, please bring them to repentance. What can I do to help them repent? Lord, 
How can I help? Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Don't let it stay there. Because like a cancer, it will destroy a church. Sin left unchecked by the church will destroy the church. It is a cancer and it will destroy. Just like we would remove a cancer from our body to keep it healthy, we must be careful to remove this kind of wickedness from the body. Now, as we've already seen, the goal of all such action is restitution. It's, it's, it's reconciliation. It's restoration, right? In fact, in, in this, this particular incident in, in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul actually brings this guy back up. He says, hey, that guy you released to Satan, he's repented. What are you doing? Bring him back, right? So Paul even tells them, when, when the guys, once the guy's repented, mission accomplished, bring him back with open arms. Give forgiveness, right? In, in, uh, in the beginning of 2 Corinthians, I'm not sure off the top of my head, but if you want to check that out, there's a follow-up to this passage in 1 Corinthians 5 and 2 Corinthians. I believe it's uh, chapter 2. Um, so the goal of all these actions is restoration. Um, if we look back to our passage in John, notice that Jesus acted in love toward Judas, right? Jesus didn't just say, oh, you're going to kill me? Fine, get out of here, right? He washed his feet. I would say that's a call to repentance. The very one that you know you're about to come and kill is washing your feet. Wouldn't that great on the conscience of Judas? Second, he has him sitting in a place of honor. And that would tear you up. Yet he still remains unrepentant. Jesus then gives him the morsel of honor. Give him the first bite. And yet he still is unrepentant. Jesus gave every opportunity to Jesus to repent, but he remained unrepentant. Now, there is a unique situation with Judas. He had to fulfill scripture. The crucifixion had to take place. But as we saw last week, this is not, he is not exempt from any, uh, from any uh, uh, responsibility here. His will was aligned with the will of Satan. He wanted what Satan wanted, therefore he went through with this. So he is responsible for what he has done. We also see this discipline is loving, right? Discipline is a loving thing. Now, again, if my son, right, which he does often, was to go face first off of the couch, right? I might grab and say, stop it. No. Why? Why would I discipline him? Because I don't want him to get hurt, right? Same with the, the you may have heard the illustration of a child, you know, or you may have had this happen in your own children. Curtis hasn't done this yet, thankfully, right? But trying to touch the hot stove, right? Say, no, don't do that. You may, out of fear, smack their hands and knock it off. You want them to catch. You want them to get the idea. This is not safe for you. Discipline is important to raising children. It must take place. God even says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, it says he loves those who he disciplines. Discipline is a loving thing. If we tell someone, if we, if we allow sin to take place in our church or allow there to be a lack of accountability in our church, we are telling that person, it's okay. Your sin isn't really that big of a deal. When we take sin seriously and we pursue church discipline or church restoration, when we pursue these types of processes, what we are saying is, that's dangerous. 
Not coming to church for 10 years is dangerous. You're not fulfilling the commands of Christ. Living in sin is dangerous. You're reaping judgment on yourself and we don't want that for you. We want to see you living a full, healthy relationship with Christ. So it's a very loving thing. Discipline speaks to the community about how seriously we take sin, especially public sin, right? Let's say this for instance. Let's use an example here. I'm making this up off the top of my head, I promise. So if there's any basis in reality, please know that it is not intended, right? Let's say that there is someone who is cheating on their wife, right? And everyone in town knows it, right? And they're a deacon at our church. I'm going to use a really extreme example that's not taking place as far as I know, okay? Please understand that, right? But if we had a deacon who was cheating on his spouse, and everyone in the, congreg- everyone in the community knew that, and we did nothing about it, what is that going to tell the community about what we think about sin? I don't really think it's that big of a deal. Why should I go there? I don't take the Bible that seriously. And that would be utterly ridiculous. So the community, it, it actually speaks to the community about how seriously we take sin. Church discipline actually tells the community the gospel. It speaks the gospel to the community. It says sin is serious and it deserves wrath, it deserves punishment, and you need Jesus. Every one of us need Jesus. We take sin seriously. It tells the community that it shares the gospel with the community. Discipline also brings accountability to our membership. When someone becomes a church member, they are saying that this is the community with which they want to grow in Christ. We then have a responsibility and commitment to them to urge them to grow in their, in their faith. Ephesians 3 says this way, that the church is for the building up of the body of Christ until, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Likewise, someone who joins in church membership takes on the same commitment to us and the, and the same responsibility to one another. They're saying, this is where I want to grow in my relationship, and I'm committed to you as much as you're committed to me. When church membership takes place, that's a serious deal. We need to take that seriously because Scripture takes it seriously. So when someone is unrepentant or is absent, absent, how on earth can they fulfill these biblical obligations? How can they? The answer is they can't. They cannot fulfill the obligations and commitments that they have made, the responsibilities that they have made. And how does the body t- handle that? The church body suffers because of that. Right when there are limbs missing, the church body suffers. When there are people who are not here, who are not, I mean, think about this. There are, uh, just because I know about our, 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 our membership roles, we have people who are members of our church who are not helping me stay accountable. There are people who are members of our church who are not here to help you stay accountable. There are people who are members of our church that we cannot keep accountable. We can't say, hey, how's it going? How's your life in Christ going? How's your prayer life this week? Are you struggling with anything? How can I pray for you? Right? We're also called to pray for one another. How can we pray for those that we don't know the needs of? Now again, 
I want to reiterate this. We are not saying that that person is not saved. Only they and the Lord know that. But they are not acting like it. Jesus, with no hesitation, because of the unrepentance of Judas, sends him away. Go do what you need to do. Right? He doesn't get up in the middle of the, of the, of the, of the, of the meal and say, Judas, just, just please don't. Please don't do it, Judas. I'm begging you, please don't do this. Or use his power and say, Judas, you're not doing it. Right? Or say, you know what, Judas? It's okay if you want to betray me. Just, hey, just hang out and have a meal with us. Right? No. He says, without any uncertainty, he says, go and do what you need to do. Because he's loving to do so. He's loving to let them go. So then I ask you, Jesus sent away Judas because he was concerned about keeping the community of faith pure and ready for discipleship. Likewise, we also need to keep our community of faith pure. Individually, every one of us have a responsibility to be repentant towards sin, to take sin seriously in our own life. As a church, we have a responsibility to reflect the kingdom of God to our community by taking sin seriously and taking church membership seriously. What a tragedy that we would allow someone to live in unrepentant sin and not urge them to repentance. What a tragedy that we would have people in membership to whom we have no accountability and worse yet, no knowledge of their current walk with Christ or even whether or not they're alive. How are we as a church going to be obedient to the commands of Christ to have a clean community? What are we going to do? What are you going to do individually? Is there sin you need to repent of? Is there, is there repentance, is there confession and repentance that needs to take place in your own life? Is there someone that you've sinned against that you need to go to and say, look, I have sinned against you, I need forgiveness? Or us as a church, are there people that we're not loving properly, that we're not loving biblically by allowing sin to take place? Again, first step is we need to talk to people, right? We need to seek restoration, who do you need to talk to this week? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity we have. God, thank you for this example you've given us of your sending Judas away. Lord, even though this is a, a tough passage to deal with, God, even as you sent Judas away, you've called us to keep our community pure as well. And that sometimes means sending people away. Because, Lord, we, we want the best for them. We want to see them. We want to see them walk in you. We want to see them walk uh, in, with a strong relationship with you. And if we have any desire to do that, that requires tough, tough conversations sometimes. God, I pray you would help us as a church to be obedient to your word and to apply this in some way. Uh, and, and through this week and, and through the, the future of our church, may we be obedient to you. In your name. Amen.